What's up, y'all? This is Dr. Craig Walid, your host here on the Prison to Promise podcast, where I explore strategies formerly incarcerated people use to avoid returning to prison. On this episode, I'm joined by Jessica Yunts. Over 20 years have passed since Jessica served time in prison. Since that time, she has earned a Juris Doctorate degree and a PhD. Jessica works today as a formerly incarcerated justice advocate and as a co-director at the Justice Impact Alliance. I invite you to listen to Jessica's discussion about how she has and continues to confront, fight, and tear down obstacles that deprive formerly incarcerated people from regaining their full citizenship. So once again, Jessica, I just want to say thank you for joining me here on the Prison of Promise podcast, where most of what I try to do is highlight the stories of formerly incarcerated people to show that we can also be successful post-incarceration, ultimately showcasing our success, our humanity, and our agency. So uh, with that, um, again, thanks for being here. And if you would, maybe you can begin by telling us, our listeners, a bit about uh, who you are, where you're from, and uh, what life was like a, a, a bit as you were growing up. Sure, and thank you for having me. Um, my name is Jessica. I am formerly incarcerated. I went to St. John's for undergrad. I moved to Florida in my late 20s, right before I started law school. I've been here ever since, and I'm married with four amazing children. Um, yeah, from Long Island, um, uh, growing up, I, you know, I, from what I remember, I, when I was younger, it was a normal working class family. I mean, dad, when I was younger, had like two jobs. Um, my mom left when I was 12, and we moved. Um, and I think things, you know, started changing for me a little bit then. Um, but I have a good relationship with her now. So great for sharing that. And I'm happy that you and your mom uh, have a great relationship, a pretty good relationship, as you described it. Um, so, as you know, this is about folks who've been formerly incarcerated. As you indicated, you were formerly incarcerated. Um, mm-hmm. How much time did you do um, in prison, and how long have you been out? Sure. So I, like I said, it was over 20 years ago. I was sentenced to 29 months, uh, one year and a half with house and four years supervised release. I ended up uh, getting into, uh, it was federal and I got into a boot camp program. So I served seven months. I did one year and a half with house and then three years supervised release. That boot camp had to be um, pretty trying, pretty intense to go into boot camp. But it I was guess, an experience. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's over 20 years ago, so it's behind us. But let me ask you this. While you found yourself in jail, um, waiting to go to boot camp, waiting to get sentenced, while you were in boot camp, or somewhere around in that time, 
should I say, at what point did you start thinking about what it is you need to do to avoid being in such a position again? I was still young. I don't know. I don't know. I just, you know, I, I think for me, the hardest part, you know, I, I was as a young teen in a very abusive relationship. And I think that kind of like just, you know, put me in a different place and led me to putting myself in certain situations that I, I probably shouldn't have been in. But I think while I was incarcerated, it was just like everything else. It's just, I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to get through it. Um, I wasn't really thinking of when I got out. Um, I, I, you know, I just remember for the most, like, I just didn't like, I definitely didn't enjoy being strip searched, uh, putting shackles, uh, handcuffs, uh, you know, all of it, just, you know, seeing and experiencing that in and of itself was an experience and traumatic, of course. Yeah, yeah, and trust you me, I know, and you're preaching to the choir about the trauma of being strip searched and shackled, etc. Um, so I guess then, what has kept you out so long? Because, and I asked that question deliberately like that, because as we know, people tend to cycle in and out of incarceration once they find themselves in the belly of the beast. And sometimes that happens for the next 20, 30 years of their lives. Um, what was so different about your experience that you were able to stay out? For sure. Um, I would have to say my father. <laughs> he's been my rock and he's always been there for me. And I, I know without him, I wouldn't even been able to, you know, go to school and get my degrees and all of that. Um, but the, the reality is that the barriers are there for all of us. And it's just, for me, it was just a fight. Like I wasn't gonna let them win per se you know like I feel like it's a constant battle or struggle or push to keep us down and I just had that fight in me mm. and I didn't want to I didn't want that to happen but um definitely I would say what what kept me out and the fight in me were my kids I I was not a mom when I went in but when I got out I got pregnant while I was in the halfway house actually and they the day I signed out for my supervised release, I gave birth the next day. So I really didn't have any sense of freedom in that sense. I, you know, I became a mom and it was just doing everything I can for my son. Um, but I would say the first barrier that I saw, so I saw the issues right away, was when I got released, they told me I couldn't go back to school. I'm like, why can't I go to, I had just finished my first year of college. When I got in trouble, I had um, just finished my first year of college. And so all I wanted to do is, is go back. Um, and there was a barrier right there. We can't go back to school. Why not? I could go, but the reality was the halfway house gets 25% of your check. And so if you go to school, you work less and they make less money. And I was not going to have it. So I fought it and I won and I got to go to school. Uh, so I went back to school. Um, and like I said, that was just the first of many barriers that I started to see. And then I really saw how it was impacting my children. When I'm restricted on where I can work, where I can live, 
uh, that ultimately impacts them in their future. And so that really drove me to want to fight for change more than how it impacted me. But like when I started seeing how it impacted uh, my children, really, really, when I went to law school, uh, that was my goal, like just to to be a public defender, to do whatever I could to help people and and break down some of these barriers. Wow, that's tenacious. That's just fascinating, you know. And I guess it speaks to your tenacity. And you know, going back a little bit, I think you you pointed out two very important things, which are protective factors that keep people out, which is having that support, as you mentioned, dad was your big support, um, and then having kids, having family. Um, and loving on your family. I think uh, research even shows that those are protective factors that help people stay out of prison. Not to mention you had this innate um, tenacity, ferociousness in you that uh, encouraged you and propelled you to fight, fight for your freedom and fight for, fight for the wellness of your children. So um, in, in highlighting that, if there was another, say, young person uh, who was the age that you were when you found yourself in trouble returning to the community? Um, what would be some insight you might share with that young person, particularly a young woman or any young person for that matter? Uh, what would be some uh, some jewels that you might be able to give them? Don't give up, you know, just take, take it day by day. You know, we get through it every day. And the reality is we are strong, we're resilient, and we're resourceful, and we can make it work. And, and, don't you know? Don't let them send you back in. You know the, the reality is it's so much easier not to fight <laughs> and and just to give up. And my my advice is not to. You know if if we all together work to to change and break down these barriers, think of you know the impact that could have on other people. You know, um, absolutely. It's, it's, it's the reality is the barriers don't go away, and so you know we we have to keep fighting to change these policies you know even with my felony conviction being over 20 years old um, i still if i move i have to find things that are not in a homeowner's association you know there's still like those barriers don't go away it's how you choose and it's really about respect let them limit us or we could figure out ways around it and um you know education definitely kept me busy and motivated um, but the reality is, if I wasn't married, I still don't know how I'd support myself and my children. You know, um, I always had my father and his support. But the reality is, being formerly incarcerated, I make a lot less money than my counterparts. So the reality is that the barriers are always there. It's it's yeah. it's really just keeping the, the tenacity, like you said, keeping the strength up, keeping your spirits up, because they can't take my happiness. They can't steal my joy. You know, that that's all what I make of it. And I won't let them. That's right. And that that's one to grow on. And thanks for sharing that. And yeah, you know, there's, there's this double standard almost, or not even a double standard, but you know, uh, for lack of a better term, a double whammy that, that you that you face because you're formerly incarcerated and a woman. And so we know typically in our society, though it's not fair, women make less money than men. And then add on top of that, having a felony conviction, you, you make less money. And, and then I, if you threw race into that, that, that's a whole nother dynamic that impacts. Oh, yeah. yeah. So just imagine if you are a black or Hispanic woman with a former, right. uh, with a felony conviction. Hell yeah, that would make it even that much more daunting. And I think yeah. about my own experience, you know, um, like you, you know, I've gone to school, I've gotten um, degrees, professional degrees, and I still make less money than my counterparts. You know, 
And I talked to a woman not long ago, and I may have shared this with you before. Um, she found herself getting uh, booted out of Airbnbs simply because she had a felony conviction. You know, so it's definitely um, tough, but I think the barriers are there, um, and our ability to to face them, to fight them, makes us that much stronger, that much more capable, um, that much more resourceful versus taking the easy way out, as you mentioned, and not fighting. Right. And like you said, the barrier, you know, the dynamic between being a man and a woman is just different. Um, I, I think we talked about once before, just the, the social impact, you know, the women aren't supposed to get um, arrested and convicted and be felons and all that, you know, so the fact that we are just dealing with that in everyday relationships at the, you know, with the, the schools, with other parents, mm -hmm. um, significant others, family members, you know, there's so many different dynamics at play that we have to deal with on a daily basis when people find out that we're formerly incarcerated. Yeah, but we can't stick our head in the sand, right? No. We still stand up tall and go for what we know, you know, and that's what I'm hearing from you, from just knowing you this brief time, talking with you uh, on these these uh, mediated sources, you know, I realize that you're a fighter, um, like I'm a fighter, and probably like most people who've come out of prison and have managed to do something with their lives, despite facing the barriers, despite being ostracized, earning less, um, marginalized, we continue to push forward because I think any good day um, in the community, or should I say uh, any bad day in the community outweighs a good day in the penitentiary. Yeah, and the reality is if we overcame prison, then yeah. you know nothing out here we should, you know, we shouldn't be able to handle. Absolutely. I always tell people that has been my lowest point in life. And so anything else that happens can't stop me other than death. You know, if I'm not a dead, you know, then I'm going to keep going because I've been to the lowest points, you know? So yeah, I'm with you on that. So um, I celebrate you. Um, I congratulate you and other people, specifically women um, who've been incarcerated because I know that the, the plight is that much more difficult, you know? So what are you doing nowadays uh, with yourself? And I ask this just to give uh, any formerly incarcerated person who's listening um, some insight and inspiration and to what they can do with their lives. Sure. Well, I just got my PhD, uh, so there's that. Um, but I also um, working with a partner and a wonderful, amazing team on a digital platform that uh, hopefully helps people navigate this space, um, but also works to build collaboration and connectivity in the movement. Uh, we really, like I said before, you know, like if we could just all work together in this, like there's so much we can do. Um, and I just really, really, truly feel like we're better together uh, and it, it shouldn't be separate. You know, we're all in this. We all live these experiences and we should all be working together to stop other people from having to deal with it. Absolutely. I'm um, reminded of a, an African proverb. I'm not sure what country um, in Africa it comes from but, um, or what group of people. But it says that uh, when people work together, they can achieve amazing things. Absolutely. And then I'm also reminded of the ants, the little red and black ants of the earth. You know, they're so small, uh, but together they, they accomplish such amazing things. And so if we took some time just to check out the ants, check out nature, I think that we could learn a lot about our own potential. 
know, and there's so much we have so much you know we're smart like i said we're resilient we can overcome things yeah i think you know the world has this way of beating us down and um smothering our light um or blocking our light and sometimes we know that light and that potential is there but there's so many different things that are in the way of us seeing that light or recognizing our potential that we're busy wading through all the ish that life gives us. But I think once we recognize it, we can't go back. All we can do is uh, maybe take all the ish and put it on top of the fire to build a bigger fire, you know, and just burn and burn bright, if, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I wake up every day feel blessed that I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm here. I have, like, I look at my children and I'm mm -hmm. like, it's just, it's amazing, you know, and I'm not any struggle that I face. I'm not going to let that take away from the amazing joy that I have. Absolutely. So if you were to think about your life's journey from as far back as you can go, maybe from the point where you started um, getting into trouble, um, until this point right now in your life, if you could maybe capture that, say, in a catchphrase or as the title of your life story or book or something, what would that catchphrase? I have no idea. No, I have idea? no idea. So how would you describe your, your journey? Then? I mean, one day at a time. I just take one day at a time. I don't, you know, try to get stuck on the past. I try to learn from the past, move forward. But, you know, I really just want to do God's will and trust his plan for me. I really do. I, I, I'm trusting the process. And maybe that's it. One day at a time, trusting the process, you know, maybe that's your title. Maybe that's your catchphrase, you know, because really in reality, and I'm sure you would agree with me, all we have is the moment, you know? We don't have the past moment, we don't have the future. All we have is here and now. So yeah, we have to take it one day, really one step, one moment at a time. And that's right. You can't stress about the past and you can't worry about the future, you know? You can just take it one day at a time. Absolutely, so there we go. Maybe I helped you recognize your, your <laughs> title of your personal book, you know? Yeah, someday. Yeah, just do it, right? Everyone tells me I should write a book. And I'm like, people don't think it's fiction. They won't even believe it's real. <laughs> that might make it even that much more attractive because, you know, they think it's fiction. They're like, you read this story? It's such an amazing There's story. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Go for it. Though. But, yeah, with that, um, I know that you you have an agency, too. Can you talk about your agency a little bit and what the work is that you guys do? Yeah, it's the, that's what I was discussing the, the, before about the platform. Um, me and my partner, Dieter, uh, Justice Impact Alliance, um, he had actually been working on starting the first, which he did, the first National Justice Impact Bar Association for formerly incarcerated and justice impacted uh, lawyers and other legal professionals. And so I was working together with him on that. And we both had the idea to develop this platform. Uh, so we started Justice Impact Alliance, and now the platform's actually live uh, in the pilot in New York and Connecticut, mm -hmm. and we're hoping to take it nationally. That's dope. And so if folks wanted to reach out to you and your partner, Dieter, at the Justice Impact Alliance, 
how can they contact you? They can email me, Jessica at justiceimpactalliance.org. Okay. And that's Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A? Yep. At justiceimpactalliance.org. Yep. Dope. That's dope. So that's about all I have for you in our conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to share um, with folks who are listening on the Prison of Promise podcast? I've listened to yours since you started and I love them. And the reality is what I've been saying all along, we're all in this together. And, you know, and all of our stories have value, they have meaning, and they're important. And we need to share our stories to humanize these issues that we experience and try to get people to understand that even if somebody does something wrong, we shouldn't be treated or subjected to the trauma that we are and that not only we face, but that our, our families face along with us. Yeah. And that's a big piece, Jessica. I think you're the first person who really talked about that since I've been doing this podcast is the trauma that the families deal with, you know, and that goes for generations sometimes, you know, and I know that. Absolutely. I mean, we know that cycles, uh, that incarceration causes cycles of incarceration and poverty, but there was a couple of recent studies I even included in my dissertation with, that showed that not only does does the incarcerated lead to health issues in family members? It actually reduces life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it a lot has to do with stress, emotion, all of that. That impacts everybody. And the the stress and the, the damage that is done to people, you know, while they're yeah. incarcerated, let alone what's being, you know, impacted on the families, it's just inhumane. Yeah. And think about, you know, the health implications that you mentioned for incarcerated people. Some of those same things play out for people that work in the prisons, the COs, the guards, those who are providing direct, uh, for lack of a better term, direct care or direct attention to incarcerated people. They have poor health outcomes as well. So, yeah, prison is is is. It's nothing nice. It does no one anything good. It's high stress, you know, and the more we treat people like this, regardless, either seeing it, being part of it, being witness to it, dealing with it on a daily basis, that only impacts stress. And we know the impact stress has on our bodies. So anybody that is here, the people that uh, service providers on the outside, it leads to burnout. It's a very stressful situation to see how people are treated and then being in a position that there's, you're limited on what you can do because of the policies that are in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then poor healthcare when you get into those places, you know, and not to mention the, 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 the gap or the lack of uh, continuity from prison to the community for continued care, because as we know, some people, once they're incarcerated, in many cases, that's the most and the best health care attention that they've ever received in their lives. And they sometimes find stability, but once they leave there and go back to the community, the ball is dropped and they fall between the cracks. And on the on the flip side, there's the facilities that charge for health care and, you yeah. know, there's different kind of copay mechanisms and things so people don't go and get the care that they need for fear of the payment issues. There's, I mean, again, this is all, you know, we're preaching to the choir. These are all real issues. And the, the reality is that, and what's sad is, is that these are like jurisdictional issues. So it's like you're, 
confinement experience, your fines and fees, you know, every uniform, it's, it's, it's based on where you live, you know, or where you end up catching a charge or whatever the case may be. And it's, there's no, there's no right way to do this. And we're clearly no not doing it the right way, but. Um, yeah, there's no justice. You know, and most of the people who are incarcerated, and again, as you said, we're preachers of the choir, but for those who are listening, most of the people who are locked up, they have very little resources, very little money, very little social capital, for the most part, are, are essentially politically um, and socially powerless. And so here you are in prison being charged for health care, uh, mistreated uh, with no recourse. And so, yeah, what's going to happen? You know, you're going to spiral down in most cases, but there's always. Well, I just talked to somebody today that there, I don't know, I don't know if you followed Florida and what happened here. You know, we got the constitutional amendment on the ballot, it passed, and then there was implementation legislation and then litigation and the laws kept changing. And there was all kinds of stuff going on here in Florida. And, you know, there's a lot of voter registration organizations out there registering people. But again, you know, there wasn't clarity. It was a mess. Mm -hmm. And now they're arresting people that registered and voted. I mean, the like, even the lawyers down here couldn't, you know, like, figure out what's going on, you know, let alone to be able to explain the law. And now people are getting arrested when people were just like, yeah, you know, do you have a felony conviction? Do you owe any fines and fees? And if they didn't think they did, they registered, you know, and now they're actually being charged and arrested for voter fraud. Wow. And it's like. Wow. And, you know, I, I, did, I haven't followed that, but my, my instinct is telling me that well, my gut's telling me that that's probably taking place mostly in black and brown poor communities. I could be wrong. That's what I'm thinking. You know, so is that voter suppression? You know, is that a, a move to disempower our people? It's Florida. Florida. It's the South. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so unfortunate. You know, so let's keep up the good fight. And, you know, let's help the people become more enlightened and uh, encouraged to continue to fight and to continue to to uh, get their get their, their paperwork in order or just know what they can and cannot do so as to try to limit the, the, uh, the don't ever feel like you can I would say that you know and if there's anything that you need you know if Again, if we're all in this together, if I don't know somebody that can help, we reach out to somebody else and we just continue that network and that building and we just support and help each other. Right. And that's one of the things there. If they don't know how to get their, their paperwork right or to check on their status, if they can vote, yeah, reach out. There's always somebody out there to help you, you know. The coalition is is still doing all that. We're running that work down here. There's other organizations that you could call and help, but um, I think I believe they still have their fines and fees program. So, yeah, if you're in Florida and you're not sure, uh, give them a call. Dope, dope. And with that, Jessica, I want to say once again, uh, even though I said we were done maybe 15 minutes ago, um, I want to say thanks again, and uh, it's been a great talking to you. And I hope our listeners are able to um, glean some great information, um, insight, and motivation from listening to your discussion with me today here on the Prison of Promise podcast.
Awesome. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. No doubt. Peace. If you or someone you know would like to share their story on this podcast, or if you'd like to leave a comment or suggestion, please drop me a line using lowercase letters at D-R-C-R-A-I-G-W-A-L-E-E-D at gmail.com. That is Dr. Craig Walid at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I look forward to hearing from you. Peace.